Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Ocean Protect Podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Oh, welcome friends to the Ocean Protect podcast. This episode features part three of four of recorded audio from the inaugural Ocean Plastic Action Forum at Bondi Beach held on 15th of March 2023 as part of the Volvo Ocean Lovers Festival. This episode features the path to purging a plastic session where we discuss potential future innovations and actions to help turn the tide on plastic pollution in our oceans. So uh, Allegra Spender, MP from the Federal Parliament of Australia, provides a short presentation to kick off the session. And then she's joined by Marjorie O'Neill, MP from the New South Wales State Parliament, Mike Smith from Zero Co., Dr. Julia Razor from ULUU, and Paul Riley from Samsara Eco from an interactive panel discussion and Q&A with the audience. Boom, boom, a shake the room. I'm very pleased now to introduce our exhibitor pitch, and I'd first like to welcome to the stage Paul Riley, CEO and founder of Samsara Eco. Thanks for that. Um, look, we're very pleased to be here today to introduce Samsara, breakthrough technology using enzymes to break down plastics back to their monomers. The company was formed about two and a half years ago using technology from ANU with the CSIRO to deliver infinite recycling over a mixed bale of plastics. That's our stated goal. Technology itself has the potential to actually move the dial both on waste and on the climate. We can take now a bottle, a footy jersey, a meat tray, a tomato punnet, and we can put it through our process and in one hour we can deliver the monomers that made up that plastic. So in the case of, of polyester or PET, we deliver TPA and we deliver MEG. Products that we deliver out of that are identical to virgin products. So we actually displace fossil fuels from the plastic supply chain. In fact, you can imagine a world using our technology where you never needed to use fossil fuels ever again to make plastic. The actual process itself has a very low carbon footprint. There's no heat, there's no pressure. It takes one hour. The enzymatic step takes about eight minutes for us to actually deliver back the monomers, which are then separated. They're identical to fossil fuel created monomers. So there's no degradation in that at all. And the plastics that you can make out of that are equivalent to virgin derived plastics, which is very different to current recycling technologies. I mean, I think a lot of people wouldn't understand that mechanical recycling is not recycling, it's downcycling. You end up with a product that is it, that's degraded, 
the structural integrity of the product is inferior and ultimately it'll turn black. It's simple heat melt extrude process. It's not true recycling. So this is the first true recycling technology that can deliver infinite recycling across plastics. But it's not just polyester that we're focused on or PET. Our goal was actually the mixed bale of plastics and that's what we've set ourselves up to achieve. We can now do nylon. We have enzymes that will depolymerize nylon. We have polyurethane, we have polycarbonate, we have PLA. You think of polyester, polyurethane and nylon, you've got active where we can dissolve fast fashion. We can take coloured clothing in and the enzymes actually strip the colour out. So you end up with raw materials that are clear, clean, structurally the same, that can be used over and over again. And we don't need to send that footy jersey to landfill or send it to Africa to kick our problem down the road. We can solve mixed plastics. So we've already demonstrated that we can take polyester out of a combined polyester LDP bag. One of the huge impediments to recycling are mixed plastics, but the enzymes are such, they can actually take it out of the process, take the polyester out or the nylon out and leave those plastics that we as yet haven't found an enzyme for that we can resolve. But our platform technology, we're confident, will get us there. What makes us really different is that we can meet market price. Our conversion costs are actually down at mechanical recycling conversion costs. So compared to other advanced recycling technologies, we can meet market and that's all because of the process. We've created a continuous process for recycling. We use virtually no heat in it. We use very few consumables. We have immobilized our enzymes, which allows us to use the most expensive part of the process for 10 days before we need to replenish those enzymes. The end result is that you have a conversion cost of waste into brand new monomers that is very, very low. This technology, as I say, has the, has the, the twofold effect of eliminating plastic waste because we give value now to waste where there is no value. So all those tomato punnets and mushroom punnets and bakery trays you're putting into your yellow bin, they don't get made into anything except maybe a bit of garden furniture occasionally. We can take them. We can divert everything from landfill. We can pay for product now that has no value. And in doing that, we can actually eliminate carbon from the environment compared to thermal technologies and other advanced recycling technologies that in some way I'll, I'll say you know, you're probably better off putting LDP in landfill rather than putting it through a thermal technology that heats it to 400 degrees and then releases the carbon. We don't release any carbon and we shouldn't be in a position where we need to choose between solving the waste crisis and solving the climate crisis. If you can't solve the plastics crisis, you can't solve the climate crisis. So we believe this technology represents a paradigm shift in the approach to how we handle plastics. We recently raised a very successful Series A. We raised $56 million from a range of international investors that's going to allow us to build out our facilities. We'll have a, an innovation hub that we're creating down in Canberra, which will be doing some reasonable volumes for trial products. And we're looking to build a 5,000 tonne capacity facility in Melbourne with the assistance of Breakthrough Victoria to be processing polyester initially. So a game-changing technology that we wanted to introduce to you that we think could actually shift the dial on carbon and plastics waste. Thank you, Paul. That was inspirational. And I have to say, it's so exciting to be in a room where we're not just discussing all the problems, which we're already aware of, but to discuss the solutions and some of the breakthroughs that we're on the verge of. I'd next like to invite our next presenter, Brad Dalrymple, who you all know from this morning, Principal Environmental Engineer at Ocean Protect. But look, who is Ocean Protect? We basically stop pollution going to our waterways. 
We've been doing this for over 20 years now. And we put in over 50,000 assets and we maintain about 10,000 of those assets. And we basically stop about over eight tonnes of pollution on average every day. So we do that by putting in stormwater treatment assets and taking the pollution that is, is captured in those assets and taking it away from the system, essentially, either recycled, repurposed, or put in landfill. The stormwater system is a fantastic way when rain falls on the ground and washes our streets and car parks and roads and highways and washes those environments clean and that pollution gets washed away. But that away is into stormwater pits, into pipes and ultimately into our waterways and oceans. So Ocean Protect, we basically put in assets to stop that pollution. So often these assets are underground, uh, like some of the largest sort of what we call gross pollutant traps, which Murray talked about this morning. And sometimes they're underground filters and also like little in gully pit inserts or gully pit baskets. So stuff like this. And we've got about over 10,000 of these all across the joint. And look, you can see what they capture. It's a whole bunch of single-use plastics, cigarette butts, wrappers, bottles, all the stuff that basically Graham talked about this morning about picking up in his beach cleanup. Why? It's because 80% of all ocean plastic is coming from our land. And the key way that pollution gets into our oceans and waterways is via the stormwater network. So we put in our assets in to basically stop that. Look, to Murray's point, I think Murray made the point this morning, we'd rather be out of a job. We'd prefer not to actually have to do this, but ultimately people are still littering. And there's obviously a whole bunch of pollution coming from various environments that we just don't want to uh, end up in our waterways and oceans. So yeah, it gives you an idea of uh, what we're capturing our assets. So again, single-use plastics and a whole bunch of gunky sediment. Look, give me an example. I mentioned we've got about 10,000 of these gully pit inserts around the joint. This is what we picked out of just eight of those gully pit inserts from a pretty typical stock standard uh, road reserve in Western Sydney. These gully pit baskets were in eight individual gully pits in the ground for five months. And this is what we picked up, 850 pieces of plastic, all the stuff that you see in your beach cleanup, cigarette butts, plastic wrappers, et cetera, aluminium cans, et cetera, and a whole bunch of pretty manky sediment. So I think Jeremy uh, is here. He actually did the little analysis. So uh, it's pretty gruesome work, but it gives you an idea of what we, we're pulling out of these assets. But fundamentally, there's tens, hundreds of thousands of pits without anything like this. So the vast majority of our urban environment has nothing in the way of stormwater treatment assets. We're very proud of what we do at Ocean Protect, but I'm gonna share what really annoys me in this space. So number one, it annoys the crap out of me, single-use plastics. That's what we see in these assets. That's what we see in the beach cleanups, and that's what we see in our stormwater treatment assets. They fundamentally should not be in our environment, full stop. And we are seeing a progressive ban of single-use plastics, but from my perspective, that isn't happening fast enough. Second point, what really annoys me is roads. Roads are a massive source of my primary microplastics. Depending on which science you listen to, and I'm, and I'm conscious of the fact that Denise is looking at me very carefully, it's either top one, or it's either number one or number two source of primary microplastics in our oceans is tire, vehicle tire wear and tear. Where's it come from? From our road environments. So the average car tire loses about a kilo of weight over its lifetime. Times that by how many cars in the world? And typically that pollution, that vehicle tire wear and tear, which is highly toxic, is washing our waterways and oceans. But the third thing that really annoys the bejeebas out of me is the fact that we've got so many of these stormwater treatment assets in the ground across the country, hundreds of thousands probably, and the vast majority of them get no maintenance. So the vast majority of these, like often underground garbage bins that fill up with pollution, 
no one is cleaning them out. So what happens? Incoming pollution comes in, they generally bypass or overflow or spill over, and they basically can't function. So we've collectively probably spent billions of dollars in infrastructure to put these assets in the ground, and they fundamentally don't work because no one is cleaning them out. It's crazy. It's illegal too. It is illegal. If you look at New South Wales, and I've liaised with the New South Wales EPA, it is illegal to let that pollution spill or leak out or otherwise escape from these containers. No one is doing anything about it. No one is enforcing that legislation to ensure that these assets are appropriately maintained. There's a couple of councils, Blacktown City Council being one leading the charge in terms of fixing that, but it's not happening fast enough. And it's one of the most easiest low-hanging fruits. The, the existing stormwater treatment assets are already in the ground, just making sure they're appropriately maintained. So I know there's a couple of guys from New South Wales EPA in the room. I've raised it with them previously about actually enforcing that legislation. You're welcome to have a chat with them further as well on my behalf to encourage them to do something about it. But also, it's not just New South Wales EPA, it's a whole bunch of councils as well. Most councils are very aware of this issue and are doing nothing about it. And that's not good enough. So thanks very much. Thank you, Brad. I think it's um, the classic out of sight, out of mind. Mm. So councils may be aware of it, but because people aren't and they're not complaining about it, nothing gets done about it. I'm going to hand back over you to, Brad, to you, Brad, for the final session of the day. Cool. Thank you. There's been a lot of talk about ocean plastic and the current trends and impacts and what we're currently doing about it and their successes or otherwise. But this one's all about future innovations and actions. So it gives me great pleasure to kick off proceedings. Allegra Spender, MP, welcome to the stage. Good afternoon and thank you so much for having me here and a huge congratulations to Anita and the team for putting this whole festival together because it is absolutely people who take this issue on and do it through business, through community, that makes the difference. And also now we need to do the heavy lifting through politics as well. I also, before I speak, would like to also acknowledge the land on which we're meeting, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and, and particularly note their custodianship of the land. You know, I don't think I need to tell this forum how important action on plastics and ocean plastic is. You know, I was a beautiful Bondi on the weekend with my kids and sitting down with my six-year-old. And in five minutes, we picked up, you know, he and I just sitting on our towels, picked up a handful of basically small, mainly unidentifiable plastics because they're so small, they're broken down. They don't get picked up by the big cleanups and they're just absolutely insidious and absolutely omnipresent. And you can see that in beautiful Bondi, but you can see it absolutely the world. And I find it absolutely shocking that Australians consume more single-use plastic per person than anyone else, any other country in the world except for Singapore. You know, we see ourselves as responsible, outdoorsy, caring for our environment, but in terms of our actions, in terms of plastic, it's, it's completely um, off the chart. You know, despite, I think, you know, millions of people, you know, trying to do their best in terms of recycling, we still get about 145,000 tonnes of plastic into our environment. And a lot of that, you know, leaking into oceans with 80% of estuarine litter estimated to be of plastic. So, you know, I think, you know, we as this group of people in this room know, I think, the challenge that we face and also very much agree with Paul's comments and, and Vina's comments. This is not just a plastic problem. This is actually a carbon problem. And, you know, these two things are absolutely linked. And so, you know, there in terms of how to solve this and what we need to do, we've done a lot of work. I think a lot of people are doing absolutely fabulous work, but there is a role for government here. And that's what I want to talk about is the role for government. And then I'm sure in the panel, we'll be talking more about, you know, the roles for also business and community and other things, but there's absolutely a role for government. There's a role for the federal government. And so let's look at the policies that we have right now and, you know, where the flaws are. The first policy is governing plastic packaging. 
and this is absolutely crucial because the design state of a product determines 80% of its environmental impact. And, you know, to the credit of the Australian Packaging Confident Organisation, you know, they have committed to national packaging targets um, for 2025. And this includes having all packaging being reusable, recyclable or compostable by 2025 and having 70% of plastic packaging being recycled or composted. Now, these are really, I think, good targets, but they're not binding and they're not working. Under the voluntary scheme, Australia plastic consumption has actually increased while the recovery rates have stagnated. And the most recent data shows that only 16% of plastic packaging is recycled or composted, which is way off the target that we have set ourselves of 70% by 2025. And look, we shouldn't be surprised that voluntary targets aren't cutting it. We've seen this in the climate movement. We've seen it in many other areas where they are just insufficient to drive real action. And it's where, you know, people who are on the forefront of innovation, you know, are facing in some cases higher costs than those people, you know, who, who say, you know what, it's not my problem. I don't have to do it. I'll, and those bad actors. And so I think we've really moved beyond the, the space for voluntary action into mandatory action. These targets are part of the 2021 Plastics Plan, which has only been implemented so far in an ad hoc manner. This is combined with a decade of inaction on federal climate change. So we've been left really with a patchwork quilt of measures across different states and territories, which are both inconsistent and inadequate. For instance, New South Wales only introduced a ban on lightweight plastic bags in July last year. This is 14 years after South Australia and more than four years after most Australian jurisdictions. And that means Australia, New South Wales has been the sort of dumping ground for plastic bags that have not been able to be used elsewhere. There isn't even a common definition of plastic across the country, which has led to some items being banned in some places and some states and not others. So, you know, our federal system is not delivering what it needs to in this space. And even when we think we've got clarity on what to do with our plastic waste, you know, the red cycle affair shows that we really were still lacking the private sector capacity for a truly circular economy that we absolutely need to. That red cycle is meant to collect and reprocess only a small fraction of the soft plastic waste generated in Australia. Even that they were not able to meet um, is really an indictment of where we are now. Now, I know I'm meant to be part of the positive panel. So, <laughs> and I, you know, I know we've talked a lot about those issues. So really is again, this comes back to how can we collectively address this at, you know, at the different levels of government, but also with business and with community. So firstly, you know, the way I see this going forward, firstly, we must draw on the momentum at the international level. Because, you know, Australia is trying to be, I think, a positive international actor in relation to the environment. And, you know, we've recently seen a binding agreement to protect 30% of our oceans and a commitment to a future UN treaty on marine plastic pollution. So this is the opportunity for Australia to really play and also build on that international momentum. We must draw on positive domestic developments, including the recent announcement of a new ministerial advisory group on the circular economy. So these are some of the levers that we can pull. We need to tackle plastic pollution upstream so that we produce less plastic in the first place. And that is really coming back to how we think about products and putting that responsibility, you know, back on the manufacturers of, you know, the full life cycle of products. And we have to do this in a way that's as low as cost as possible. If it's expensive, you know, it gets put off. So we need to make it easy for businesses to build the capacity they need to do the right thing. And so we need to move beyond, you know, the focus on sort of pretty incremental improvements to sort of anemic recycling rates where so much of the attention has been and try and adopt a true circular economy ambition. And this is a shift in mindset that we need, but it's also a shift in gears. 
And so this is why I'm you know, pushing the environment minister for a plastics policy package that contains four key elements. And the first piece is, you know, at the federal level, we need a much more ambitious set of packaging targets and much sharper incentives to meet them. I am inspired, I have to say, by people like Paul in what he, in the business that he is is building in this space. I recently visited um, Vena in at the University of New South Wales, the Smart uh, Centre, where they are doing incredibly innovative and and you know world leading work on plastics and recycling and reuse. But you know we need hard incentives to make to actually sort of speed the adoption of these technologies because I think we've got the innovation in this country, we've got the the acumen, we've got the scientists to make that change, but we need the hard incentives to drive changes in behaviour because otherwise it is always just a a nice to have and we will not adopt this as fast as we can. So we have to move from this voluntary-led scheme to mandatory targets and that is what I will be taking to the Environment Minister. Those set out, the targets set out in 2021 are a reasonable place to start, but we need to see that ambition raised. We need to look hard at um, potentially financial, other additional financial incentives to achieve our circular economy goals, including a potential virgin plastics tax. I think it does have to be one of the things that is is on our agenda. Secondly, it's not just about saying the targets and incentives, but we also just need to implement what we've got. You know, there are a lot of existing initiatives, but we're just not making the progress on that. So it is actually just doing the hard work of implementing those because we have nearly 40 action areas were identified in the 2021 National Plastics Plan, but few of them have seen meaningful progress. So again, that's got to be a key focus from that federal level point of view. Thirdly, we need to see federal leadership to coordinate, strengthen coordination and harmonisation across the states and territories. That example of we don't even have a common definition of plastic, no wonder we can't actually unite in terms of our actions. And it makes it hard for business if business has to do different things in different states. It just doesn't work. And so business has to be a partner in this. They're not the enemy. They are. They must be the partner of this. Um, but to do that, we need to actually coordinate that to make it easier from that point of view, particularly from regulatory definitions and legislative bans. And then finally, and I think this is one that um, the Volvo Ocean community does so well is we need to empower our local community and our local businesses to support action to uh, address plastic pollution because there's real passion there. And I think actually as a nation, there's more even more passion about plastics than there is even about climate. You know, there are people I meet who, you know, I can't convince, you know, we need to really take action on, on climate change, but they do not want plastics in their oceans. And I think that's actually something that we need to really build on because that's an opportunity for us to actually bring the whole community in and unite around this because I think, you know, we can bring the whole country on this and it's a journey that I think, you know, our children want to have as adults and, and the grown-ups in the room. We we need to lead but also empower those communities around us. I just want to play tribute to, you know, Plastic Free July, Take Three for the Sea, Surfing New South Wales, all these organisations are really doing this already and this is something that, again, has to be part of the solution. We all need to act. I know I have part of my role is to be that advocate and to, to push at the federal level, we need to do it at the state level, we need to do it at the business level, we need to do it at the university and community level because this is a shared problem and we together can have a shared solution. Thank you. Thank you, Allegra.
And look, I'd like to, uh, along with Allegra, I'd like to invite the panellists of this session up to the stage, if I can. Can I also ask Dr. Marjorie O'Neill, the New South Wales Member of Parliament, the Member for Coogee, please? Uh, Richie Vandenberg from the Hidden Sea, Dr. Julia Reister from Ulu, please, and uh, Paul Riley from the Samsara Eco. Have I got everyone? Mike Smith, I I've Mike got Smith. all your products in my home, Mike, so I don't know the how easiest I've got name you. to remember. <laughs> I might actually start with Marjorie, if that's okay. What's Labor's plan for eradicating a uh, plastic from our oceans and the wider environment? It's a really good question, right? Because it's something we've been really passionate about. We went to the last state election with a policy. We've gone to the last three state elections with policies around eradicating single-use plastics. So when you talk about the fact that we were 12, we know that, right? For almost a decade before we had been pushing and pushing. So it's finally happened and we were happy that it was a policy that we had pretty much been putting forward for a decade. But that policy does need to be expanded because it's not far-reaching enough. The other things that we want to be looking at is really broadly investing much more into the circular economy. So making sure that companies that already exist are able to expand the stuff that they do. So like plastic circular, looking more as well at how we can use our procurement power as the New South Wales government as well to be making sure that the products that say our state-owned assets, our schools, our TAFEs, all through the public sector as well, whenever we are say doing refit outs of our schools and things like that, that we're using recycled products and that we can then set a new standard of behaviour in terms of how purchasing. And so that, that's sort of where we're, that our goals we're sitting at is investing in the circular economy, supporting the growth of small businesses in that area and medium and large size businesses, and using the procurement power of the New South Wales government to drive that kind of purchasing. Richie, what is the hidden sea and why plastic? Yeah, so the Hidden Sea, one wine, one mission to remove plastic from the world's ocean, comes from a, a background of uh, growing up on vineyards, so a passion for wine, a slight deviation into team sport and then understanding the importance of having having a goal and trying to get a tribe of people or a team of people from all various different backgrounds trying to achieve the same goal. And then a passion, so three things of passion, a passion for the ocean, which has come out of just uh, living and breathing the ocean. And so we set a goal of trying to remove a billion plastic bottles from the ocean by 2030 by simply giving consumers a choice. Um, when they go and buy a bottle of wine, they can buy a bottle of wine that removes 10 plastic bottles from the ocean, or they can buy a wine that doesn't. And it is as simple as that. So we're just posing that question to consumerism, really. I might dive over to you, given I did such a bad job of introducing you before. So That's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> I do have all your products in my house. They're wonderful. Thank uh, you. What's this 100-year uh, cleanup initiative that you guys are driving? Tell yeah, us okay. Just first of all, before I do that, yeah. I just wanted to say thanks to everyone for putting on the festival and also thanks to everyone in the room um, for coming down. I know from being in the trenches in the ocean cleanup game for a couple of years now, it's often a thankless game. And so I just want to say thank you to everyone in the room here for caring about the problem and rolling up your sleeves and, and getting involved because that's what we need, right? We just need more people getting involved. So to answer your question, the 100-Year Cleanup is an initiative that we launched at the back end of last year um, together with the guys from the Hidden Sea. And it's a crazy audacious plan to clean the planet every year for the next 100 years because I believe that we are not going to solve this problem in my lifetime and that it's up to everyone in the world to play a role in this and it's going to require an intergenerational effort to solve this problem. So we've set out a big audacious plan to clean the planet every year for the next 100 years. We kicked it off at the back end of last year. We went to Egypt and we pulled a million water bottles worth of rubbish out of the Nile River. 
and we built the world's largest waste pyramid in the middle of the Egyptian desert a couple of days before COP27 last year. I slept on top of the pyramid for three nights to try and get the world's attention about the plastic problem. It was a huge success. We had like 500 press clippings around the world. Um, we raised $250,000 to fund the next stage of the cleanups. And so we're rolling out a whole bunch of cleanups. There's probably 10 projects on the go this year. And, and our, the idea is to try and do the biggest, most audacious, crazy cleanups that we can do to raise as much awareness as we can about the problem and rally as many people to get involved in being part of the solution. Mm, I call that. Thank you. Paul, I might ask you a question. Like, well, there's been a lot of focus in the earlier sessions around recycling. From your perspective, why can't the current recycling technology recycle plastic properly? I think, as I said earlier, I don't believe recycling exists. It's downcycling. Everything that we do to plastic is downcycling. And even mechanical recycling technology, the go-to technology for your clean, clear plastic bottles back through your own and return. Plastic can only go through that, through that a few times before it has to be either turned into a park bench or put into landfill. And they're seeing extensive issues in Europe where they've got a closed economy of plastics where the bottles are all turning black. They can't use it anymore. So there's no solution from the current technologies. LDPE, the red cycle debacle, was greenwashing of the highest order. There are very few solutions for LDPE. We shouldn't use it. If you want to use a plastic bag, use a polyester plastic bag, not an LDPE bag. The same issue will arise with the new program that they have suggested they put in place. They'll be trying to use a thermal technology to process that LDPE. That thermal technology is going to produce three, four times the amount of carbon that a new plastic would produce. It's doing more damage than it is good. So these technologies, you need to focus not just on processing the waste. You need to look at the carbon impact of what you're doing because you don't want to be doing more damage than you are good. Just touching on legislation, it's time for legislation. I'm sick of waiting for APCO to work. It doesn't work. It's greenwashing. Everyone puts APCO on their website and they think they've done their job. Agree. It's not their job done. We need to be legislating hard for recycled content. We need to use the European model. There is no point in waiting anymore. Corporates have shown that they simply will not deliver. They've had their chance with APCO and we're not there. So it's about time we legislated and we made sure that they actually were held accountable for the damage that they're doing. I agree, I agree. with you. Can I just jump in quickly there? One of the big challenges I think we face in trying to solve this plastic problem is, first of all, educating people on the reality of the problem. And I think that there's been a massive campaign of disinformation in Australia about what recycling actually is. And to back up Paul's statements, we don't have a recycling system in Australia. We do not, right? For decades, we were shipping our waste overseas and letting somebody else deal with it. And now we've decided that recycling is a thing. And just to be clear, mechanical recycling does not create an infinite loop. There's lots of people up here today talking about a circular economy, a truly circular economy. That doesn't exist. It's an absolute fallacy. Plastic in mechanical recycling can be recycled one or two times before it is degraded. The polymer chain shrinks with every recycling stage and it breaks down and has to be put into landfill. So this concept that you can go and buy a water bottle from the shop, use it and put it in your yellow bin and it goes to a magic place and gets turned into another plastic water bottle, that is not true. And until we start to deal with the reality of the situation, we're just going to be putting band-aids on the problem. So recycling is not a thing. We need to, first of all, acknowledge that it does not exist. It is not a scalable solution to the problem. We need to stop making single-use plastic and we need to, to Paul's point, we need to regulate because big businesses had decades to deal with this problem. They know it's a problem, right? And they haven't done anything about it. So like the time to regulate is now because recycling is not a thing and big business has fundamentally failed to step up to the challenge. 
Julia, you've been very patient. You better tell us what is U L U U. That it is Ulu or Yulu. You can have your own accent when you pronounce the, the word. But yeah, first of all, thank you for having us. It's awesome to be among this community tackling plastic pollution. And what Ulu is, so we are empowering the circular economy, which has, simplistically speaking, that three components, right? That's what we're going to make polymers with. That is the circulate on the economy which as we realizing is about reusing things and getting rid of single use products. And then that is the end of life, which we can recycle and then either compost or landfill. And what Ulu is very passionate about is empowering that community with a material that has the things that we love about plastics. It's lightweight. It made our cars light. It may allow us to do lots of advanced in medicine and so many other awesome things about uh, plastics. But with two twists. One is upstream. So rather than using fossil fuels, we want to use farmed seaweed. For those that don't know, like uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, so our neighbors, there is lots of people, farmers, 65% of them are female, commonly the husband is a fisherman. They farm seaweed. And what is beautiful about marine crops is that they grow just with the seawater and the sunlight. So you don't use fossil fertilizers on, and, all, and so forth. So we purchase that seaweed. We want to create a, a transparent supply chain that truly empower uh, that supply chain because lots of our claims that rely on that. We take that and then we ferment. It looks like a brewing, uh, like a brewer, what we do. So there is this fermenters where we, we take the seaweed, put in there, and there are some special microbes in there that they start to get fat with this seaweed sugar. And their fat is a natural polymer, just like cotton and silk in your DNA. But with the difference that it mimics very well the plastic properties that we really like with a very important difference is home compostable. So, you know, in a future where the material is at scale, you might buy your veggies wrapped in some ulu and you can shop it up, your food waste, together with the polymer. And you can create a compost that also has a very good carbon-nitrogen ratio because food tends to have lots of nitrogen. And this material, which is called PHAs, it's, it's rich in carbon. So that's where we're at. Uh, we are very early stage and there are lots of uh, PHAs players that we, we want to get into the market as quick as possible. But we are true believers that to truly solve tackle plastic pollution, we need to start to see that we need lots of things together. So we need to join forces. And yes, we need new materials. Yes, we need recycling. Yes, even more importantly, reuse systems. So everything is part of the solution. If we wanted to quickly decouple our economy from fossil fuels. Cool, thank you, thank you. I'd like to... I open up to the audience for questions. Who would like to ask a question? First of all, thank you, Paul and Mike, for true words. It's got to be said, like, we're not going to recycle our way out of this. And I had a question for Julia as far as how the seaweed is grown. For instance, is it grown on uh, microplastic uh, rope or is that a problem? And also, have they really researched how this is going to affect the marine environment? all this growth of seaweed. Seaweed is a very generic word. 
and there are different kinds of seaweed. There are some of them that if you look how are currently farmed, there's quite a bit of plastic on it. There is ropes and there is uh, PET bottles and things like that. We are starting with a variety that's called red seaweed, it's called Gracilaria, because we need one that the production cost is quite low. And that one is, um, is there is some ponds where you put, you put the seaweed there and doesn't need ropes and, uh, and the plastics. The one that we're starting with don't have the problem, but that's a problem that we need to solve. And our dream is the first tulu that we produce to be used into in the infrastructure that we need for the seaweed farm. So what we want to do is to be feeding our polymer into the polymers that we need to produce not only the seaweed, but also the fermenters and all of that. We want to move into polymers as much as possible because let's say stainless steel is very heavy and there is a higher carbon footprint. So as we slowly get higher in our volumes, we want to make sure that those things, rather than using plastic for the farms, that we use actually ulu to farm that seaweed. Yeah, hi. My question's for Paul. I'm very interested in the, in these uh, microbes that can break down the plastics. And I first heard about them many years ago, but I haven't heard any la examples of large-scale use. My question's twofold. Firstly, is this microbe able to break down all types of plastics and therefore solve some of those uh, recycling issues that we have in terms of some items not being recyclable? And secondly, have you been in any discussions with councils in order to try and embed your product in their recycling systems? Each enzyme breaks down a different plastic. So we have five enzymes at the moment that break down five different plastics. So nylon, polyurethane, polyester, polycarbonate and PLA. And our program with ANU is to develop another 13 enzymes to break down those plastics. And we hope one day, and it will take years, we'll have a, a library of enzymes that can accept a mixed bale of plastics and then break all of them down and recover the monomers from those plastics. But at the moment, we've got five enzymes. The technology itself has been developing in Europe it's developed in Japan. There's some work being done in North America. And a lot of the barriers to the enzymatic process have been around cost. And traditional enzymatic processes have you munching away on hard plastic. So it's like eating an apple and it takes 16, 20 hours to go through one batch of plastic. We've turned it on its head. So it's like drinking a glass of apple juice and we've liquefied the plastic. And through the liquefaction of the plastic, we can now get the enzymes to do their jobs in eight minutes, turns the economics of the entire process on its head. So the conversion cost goes from three, $4,000 a tonne at polyester back down to $1,000 a tonne, including your feedstock costs. People we're talking to, we're partnering with potential feedstock suppliers. This is product that's coming out of recycling facilities that was destined for landfill. It's already been separated into single streams of plastic. So we're working with groups like that. So it's come from your council bin to your MRF, to a recycler, and then we step in to take that plastic that would have otherwise gone to landfill. But we're also talking to textile companies. Textiles are as big or bigger issue than, than what packaging is. I mean, there is no recycling technology at all for mixed fibre textiles. We send it off to Africa. You know, we think that that's doing the right thing, but it's not. We're talking to the charities about how we can actually step in and take that product. And we're talking to a range of other waste sorters and providers about how we get our hands on all of this plastic to process it. The aggregation challenge is still there, don't get me wrong. It's a real challenge. You know, when that when your tomato punnet goes into your yellow bin, it's going in with a whole range of other plastics that I can't deal with at the moment. I want to be able to deal with it one day, but at the moment, those mixed plastics are really hard. We're part of the solution and we're only one part of the solution. We don't claim to be able to resolve this. 
stop using single-use plastics, full stop, right? Redesign your product into plastics that can be recycled. Don't use LDP. I mean, for God's sake, don't use PVC. Don't use polystyrene. You know, there are products out there that can be recycled like polyester and people choose. It's generally cost. They choose a plastic that we can't deal with or no one can deal with. Reuse them, redesign them, eliminate them, and then we're the fourth leg of the table, which is we'll recycle them. You can't get rid of all plastics. Let's be honest. Hospitals use massive volumes of plastics. It's very hard to eliminate that. Every day, your carpet, your car, all of those plastics are there for a a benefit, a carbon benefit. The great tragedy of plastic is that we never came up with a recycling solution. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Just to, to add into that, because I, I think it's important to highlight that PHA such as Ulu, so this button is made with, with Ulu. It's quite small, but we have to start small. And this button is reusable, is also technically recyclable. So if, if, in, if we have a future that we have enough PHA, we can melt it down, like mechanical recycling, have the same challenges that you highlighted earlier. So we have, let's say, some sort of technology could even recycle PHA in the future as well, which is awesome because any polymer, PHAs or fossil plastics, they all have this problem of the polymer deteriorating when you do mechanical recycling. So you might do mechanical once and twice, then maybe enzymatic recycling. And then most importantly, if you are in an island where there is no infrastructure, it doesn't make sense to build a recycling plant. You can also just, you empower the community to shop it up and compost. So when it comes to sustainability targets, there is a future where we can have materials that are reusable, recyclable, and compostable. And I think that's what we, I'm very excited about and as Aulu are creating their the future. Cool. We just got a question over here. I've just got another question for Paul. Having done a lot of work with thermomechanical recycling or thermal transformation, I agree with you. There is a lot of carbon and a lot of awful things that are coming off it. Uh, currently, in the wider industry, that's kind of the accepted standard. You present an alternative which is which seems to be a solution to that. And being a chemical process, I'm wondering what the off materials that are coming out of it, what are the byproducts apart from the target monomer? Because typically with these materials which are engineered to be strong and put together for a long time, they're not engineered to be taken apart in anywhere near as neat a fashion as they'll put together. So what are the byproducts that are coming out of that? There are virtually no byproducts. Everything's recycled through the facility. The only byproduct or a co-product as we refer to it is Glubersalt. And that's sold back into the marketplace for, for use in a range of, of products. But all of the chemicals that are used in the process, 
the pre-processing, everything's recovered and everything's reused. So that also impacts the LCA that we've, we've had completed by a third party and keeps it very, very low. Hi, Ricky Hersberg here from Plastic Oceans. I have two questions, if I'm allowed. One is to Richie about the hidden sea process with the wine bottle. I just wonder if you could expand on what you said earlier on about for every bottle of wine, 10 plastic bottles stopped from going into the ocean or waterways. Could you explain that for us? Yeah, so... What we do is we effectively put the cost of collecting plastic in the COGS line. So rather than it being a percentage of profits, it's as the bottle is sold, that triggers the process for the collection of plastic. We use the Reseed project and they collect the plastic on our behalf. They have now grown from before we started with them. They, well, they didn't exist. Uh, they now have 50 plastic collectors collecting plastic on our behalf. We are audited or they are audited um, by a company called DNVGL to make sure that they're being held to the, to the highest standards. Our judge and jury is the consumer. We're constantly being questioned by the consumer to ensure that everything we say we're doing, we're doing. If we're unable to prove that, people will just stop buying our product. So we've got the ultimate judge and jury and I think all brands that is the test for us is that if people are buying your product you you must be proving to them that you're able to do what you say you're doing because you won't have any longevity if you don't. Fantastic thank you and um, we love your wines and thank you for your support to us as well (laughs) by the way. (laughs) My second question is to our wonderful government representatives here so to Allegra and to Marjorie. A lot of the work that we do is approaching community from the bottom up, but also working with people like yourselves from the top down. You both are agreeing that change has to happen. We have to stop recycling. We have to stop a number of things. APCO's not meeting the targets, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm sure everybody else would, is what steps, apart from what you mentioned with your opening speech, Allegra, what small steps could we as a group here that are in the right frame of mind and in this space already, what can we do as a takeaway today that could help drive that change to assist you with the bottom top down and the bottom up approach? Thank you. And look, I know so many people already are. I want to really uh, pay tribute to that. I think the the point that was made earlier about the reality of of recycling, I think is a really, really good one. The, you know, community awareness, because I think, you know, people want to do the right thing and they think if they pop it into the yellow bin, good me. And I think that's, that is actually a really important part, which is how do we educate people about the real life cycle of plastic and, you know, the really good options are, because I think there is a lot of greenwashing out there. People do want to make good choices, but it's also, again, you know, how does recycling and particularly how does that intersect with carbon, you know, and therefore with those two things, what should I do? And so I think the community sector can very much help in the education front of giving people clear choices that are not so commercially driven, but are based on, you know, the best available evidence on what are the right or the better choices in doing this. So I think that's a great piece. I think the other side is, I always say this to people, is write to your MPs. I know it sounds really ridiculous, but use your community voice for the political representatives that you have. I've had a lot of emails relating to Red Cycle, a lot of people who are concerned about this. When you're a politician, you notice what people write to you about and what people raise with you. And I think that it's, you know, you feel like you're a drop in the ocean. You are a drop in the ocean, but it does wear things away. And so I think, you know, if you're writing to your MPs, if you're writing to particularly the minister from a federal point of view, 
you write to the um, Tanya Plibersek and say, this is why I think it's really important and this is what you need to do. You have a voice and I, I think that's absolutely critical. And then finally, I think it's, you know, the sort of local initiatives, really you know, empowering those local communities to take action, particularly kids, I think is a huge workforce who want to do the right thing and so they can help. But I think being for them to be mobilised and for the community sort of mobilisation in each community can make, you know, enormous difference, you know, in those local areas. Those are my top three. Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you for asking it. And I just you've said the vast majority of it. But I think when it firstly, when it comes to plastic, it's about the education piece, which is actually starts with elimination and stopping using it. Like that's actually the beginning part of it. There was this great survey that Randwick Council did 2019. And it was something like one in four people didn't know that what goes into the drains ends up in our stormwaters and out in the ocean. It's like it's a remarkable statistic. So we've been running and I've been part of this really big education campaign with Ramwick Council called Adopt a Drain, which was this very much community-based campaign, getting people bought in to around understanding where their waste goes and taking ownership in their own local streets as well. We've kicked it off just before COVID. So uh, it sort of ended, I don't think it had the impact we wanted to, but our goals this year is really to get it into schools as well. Randwick Council does, I think, a pretty good job in terms of their gross pollutant traps, but you go and have a look at them, the huge amount of waste in there. So there's this really important education piece with our communities about, okay, like at least try and put your stuff in the bin, try, don't, don't leave it on the beach. You know, you've got great groups like Take Three for the Sea that are doing remarkable stuff as well. But I think the reality is when it comes to really complex, deep issues like this, it is going to take our entire communities coming together, picking off little bits and pieces to be able to solve them. Legislation is critically important, yes, but unless we are communicating things in culturally appropriate ways for different communities across Sydney, being able to pick and understand how different people understand things. Allegra, I get, we get it all the time, people who don't still don't believe in climate change. So you have to talk to them then about energy prices and you have to talk to them about maybe waste in plastic. So understanding if people don't see that this is really a problem, okay, how, how do I actually talk to you about this and get your buy-in? Is it about investing in small businesses to drive new economies? And so I think it's about that as well. And so understanding different people in our community and how we can sort of get them to buy into solving these problems as well. Yeah, I guess it's just a follow-on question in regards to legislation. Paul brought it up. It's common in our industry, in the stormwater industry, that we need legislation. You guys are sitting there asking us to work together in community groups. We need you guys to work together. We need federal, state and local government to work together. If you guys don't work together, nothing's ever going to happen. If you look at stormwater, stormwater passes through political boundaries, physical boundaries. Ramwick might be really good at their stormwater gross pollutant traps, but your neighbouring council may not be so good. So people will complain about at the same beach. What steps can you guys do or what can you say today on, on how you're going to do that? How can you guys work together? Because I think everyone in this room is doing their best. How, do, how are you guys going to work together to achieve the outcomes that we need? Well, first, I want to say, I think we have a pretty good working relationship. I think we both <laughs> got involved in politics for the same reason, that we thought it should be and could be done differently and that we didn't want to see 
partisan approaches to really deep, complex issues. And I think we have ongoing conversations around what can we be doing at state, federal, and we engage with local councils as well around this. So I hope that people know that that's actually how we interact with each other. In terms of legislative reform from the state governments, I think this kind of stuff that we're looking at is re-bringing in things like um, water tank rebate schemes. Like the last time Labor was in government, that's the kind of stuff that we brought in because um, and redoing um, our planning laws as well to make sure that there are setbacks in houses, right? If we're talking about stormwater runoff. We've got to reduce the amount of water that is runoff that is going there. So this, a critical part of this is around our planning and that state legislation. So setbacks in planning, making sure that there is green spaces around there, that all new builds are built sustainably where we capture as much stormwater as possible and reuse it making sure that, you know, having planning standards for state-owned assets that the water we're capturing um, in our schools can go into running the toilets, watering the gardens, funding projects like stormwater catchments all across New South Wales, not just in particular councils that are green-leaning. So this is sort of the stuff that we're looking at, we want to push in ongoing discussions with our Shadow Minister for Water about these kinds of things. And that's the type of stuff that we want to be doing as state level. And just to give you an example, we got together sort of myself, Marjorie, Alex Greenwich, Gabrielle Upton and the local councils together at the end of last year in relation to climate, particularly about what is local climate action, what does local climate action look like and what are the different levels of state, federal and local government doing about this. So we actually co-held a, a climate summit for the community. We are working with the council on things like community batteries because that's actually, it's partly council, partly federal. I think you're absolutely right. Like your challenge to government should be, you guys, you know, work both work together and also work um, with business. And I wholeheartedly agree with you that it has to be a shared approach. And and I guess I'm trying to say the same as Marjorie, that, you know, I, I take that really seriously um, because most people don't care which level of government responsibility it is. They just want it to be done. And, you know, that's where the approach I try and take is to say, look, you know, I've got my levers that I can pull at a federal level. But, you know, when someone raises an issue with me, if it's not if it's a council state issue, I'll go to my counterparts in the state and council and go, okay, I can't do anything about this. What can you do about this? And that's how we try and work together, I think. When it works, that's how it works. I mean, some people don't work together. And I think the good part of, I think, this community is that, you know, we all are different political allegiances, but I think we have got that kind of shared approach. I can't say that's always the case in, in federal politics. A question from the back. Sorry, can I, can I just jump in and ask yeah, a follow-up question for you, for you guys? This, this might be a really dumb question and maybe I'm naive here. Why doesn't the government just ban all single-use plastic? <laughs> I'll take this one. I think vested interests, like the, I think the really hard thing in politics is, you know, something I'm learning is that when a thousand people feel something gently, but, you know, two people feel it very strongly because it influences their business, it's the noisy ones that you make the difference because it's the thousand people who say, well, you know, this is important to me, but there's two people who it's really important to. And so they do everything they possibly can to say, to stand up for this. So I think it is a question of political influence. And I think that's why community actually has to stand up. This is why the best counter to vested interests is real community pressure. And so I think the the evidence, I think, is that the Australian community wants action on plastics. Even the previous government and at the federal level said, oh, we'll take action on plastic, even though they didn't, but they recognise that's the case. And so I think this is, the, you know, it's about community standing up. And I guess myself as a community independent, that's part of my job is to say, 
the community wants this. This is why we need to stand up for it, regardless of what, you know, sort of vested interests say. That's how I'm approaching it. You can do that where, where community and politics don't align. You know, there's a problem and that's where, you know, and I see that as a big part of my job. Hi there, it's Bill again. I have two questions. One following up to that. One thing I think that we are actually standing up and there is a big number of community that is standing up and I feel like how long is it going to take? How much people need to stand up for there to be enough? Like does it need to be the whole of Australia? Like that's maybe going to be impossible. So when is it going to be like our voice is heard and especially speaking for the younger generation, our voice is strong and why do we have to say that when there's older people around us that should know better? So I feel like it's like Mm. we have to yell our voice but we shouldn't have to yell. We should it should be obvious by now that there is evidence, there is scientific evidence, there is actual physical evidence, there is so much evidence that isn't that enough? Like, isn't that enough to say, hey, we need to do something about this? Because I think I would just get so exhausted if I have to yell all my life to be like, I want this to be a change. And then my other point and my other question is, we have projects that are happening that are still counterproductive. Like I live around Mossman and they want to put a turf field. So they want to make the whole football field a turf field that and it's right next to the beach. And they're not at all thinking of those kind of environmental consequences, but oh, it's better for the people. And again, there's still minings that are happening on the coast of Australia. So we are here talking about all these good things, but there is still these things that are happening. So how can we like stop that and go, hey, we need to actually stop these projects that we know that are harmful, but yet there are still projects happening that are harmful for this earth from a council point of view and from a bigger government point of view. It's a really good question, right? And I guess when I think about it from our perspective with the ALP, we had policy around banning single-use plastics more than a decade ago that we've been trying to get in, right? So we've been trying to push this. I think for all of us, we can say there's been a decade of inaction when it comes to waste and climate change more broadly. And I think that then means the pace at which we need to be doing this all needs to be much faster, much more aggressive. And I hear you. I see you. We're driving it. It's really interesting though, right? Like, so one of the challenges, say, we have here in the eastern suburbs is we've got the money for a community battery, but no one wants it near their house, right? We had a return and earn here in Bondi. It was one of the most successful that was around. There was one person that was very loudly complaining about it, so it got removed. And so this is this thing where what Allegra was saying, which is, Small numbers of very vocal people hold a balance of power when it comes to stuff when actually the vast majority of people who are silent and doing things. And so for us, yes, you're vocal and you're there. But when the person that's screaming at our door is going to the SMH, is going to Channel 7, complaining about us and telling everyone that we're bad, it creates this really uneven playing field for even people like us. So we desperately need the community to back us in so that we can pursue projects like this. And this is the kind of stuff, I don't know if it happens, does this kind of stuff happen to you? Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. So it's like, like these are the kinds of things we're faced with and we want to pursue this stuff. Like we've been trying to get more return and earns in different places and people say, yeah, 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 I want it, but no one wants it near them. And so we've then got these challenges about wanting to fast track different kinds of projects and trying to then balance these different needs. Like we're trying to get in more cycleways everywhere. Everyone says they want them. No one wants one near their house. It becomes this really 
difficult political thing. And so if you've got advice, (laughs) but this is why we need our community, right? We need people who care about stuff. We do need you to keep yelling, right? You need to be loud and vocal because that's actually how we're going to get the change. Can I make a comment? So in 2019 at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, Scott Morrison said, and I'm quoting him here, Protecting our oceans is one of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. To protect our oceans, Australia is committed to leading urgent action to combat plastic pollution, choking our oceans. From my perspective, he's done, and collectively the government's done, two-fifths of bugger all, if I'm honest. Yesterday, there was an announcement that $368 billion was committed to a submarine program. I'm not sure if anyone had a voice on that. We're very good at spending money on other stuff. No one thinks twice about spending billions of dollars on road upgrades and highway upgrades. No one thinks anything about spending gazillions on tearing down a state and just to rebuild another one. But when it comes to protecting our one of our most vital assets, the ocean, we've got short hands and deep pockets. How do we change that? Like collectively, we know, we know, not just the people in this room, we know this is a hot topic. Plastic pollution is a number one concern of the Australian public and they want to see political leadership. There's, there's votes in it. So why don't we see more action in this space? You know, Pete would love to have a bit more money for his sea bins and to drive his data programs. I'm sure Denise would have, like to have more money for CSO to drive marine debris research and action. Murray, more GPTs, more seaweed-based plastic products, et cetera, more zero-co items in our households. All this would be helped with more money. So how come this federal and state government can't just commit a lot more money to protecting our oceans from plastic pollution? Look, I think I would say, you know, you want to make a difference, think about how you vote. I mean, genuinely, that is, and because how you vote matters. And I think why am I in is because this community said, you know what, are we, we believe in climate change and we want real climate change action and we've had enough. And so that has to be, that makes the difference. Do I think the climate change policy is good enough? No, I don't. But it is, I'm pushing it in the right direction. I know that's part of my job. But I think it does come down to you have to vote. There's a lot of, I think, benefit, you know, certainly myself and other community independents, the point of what we're trying to achieve is actually stand up for what people really think, but who are not, you know, the vested interests. That's, that's what I'm seeking to do. And that's, you know, part of, you know, my job. And I know, you know, there'll be some people who support the things I do and some people who don't. And that's, you won't make everybody happy. And, you know, to your point, politicians do need backbone. I 100% agree with you. And, you know, you need to be able to make decisions that are unpopular and confront people for it. And it's hard. And, you know, on a good day, you do it. And on a bad day, you don't. And Mm. that's how I think about it is that's my job and it's my integrity. And that's what I'm trying to do. One of the problems I see is that a lot of people with very busy lives, they don't have much time or much inclination to put the time into really study a subject to really thoroughly understand it. And so they often make assumptions that what little information they have is the whole package. And they then, if they're too quick to form an opinion based on that limited information, they can often become very passionate about driving of something that they don't truly understand. Cool. Uh, thank you. Kimberly. Kimberly from Carapac. I have a question more towards Samsara and Ulu. In terms of like great innovations that you guys are going ahead and doing, I understand you've both gone through big investment rounds in order to develop that. And I think that's also a really big need in order to drive solutions forward is we actually do need the money and the resources in order to do that. 
I know there is an issue with like getting funding for female-led founders. I mean, female founders account for about 40 to 50% of founders in the impact space, be it climate, plastic, social development and all of that, but they only account for 2% of funding across Australia. So I would like to ask you both in terms of your experience in fundraising and how that went and whether it was supportive, where there could be room to grow in order to, you know, support amazing innovations in the space. We were a concept built out of an impact fund. We had ideation sessions. We were set up to solve a problem and we had support from the venture capital group from the very beginning. They, were, they put a million dollars in to deliver a proof of concept. We could have failed at that point if we hadn't have been able to show that the enzymes could take us back to virgin equivalent monomers. We thought about the funding from the very beginning and we had a program of what we needed for stage two. After we reached proof of concept, they were there to support us on stage two. And by the time we got to raising our series A, we had a fully developed business plan. We had the science where it needed to be. It was hard. It took us 11 months to raise the $56 million for the Series A, so it wasn't easy. I did 110 investor presentations, and we got eight, and they're predominantly impact investors who could see the benefits of this, both from a carbon perspective and from a plastics perspective. So it is hard. It is harder now. Even the last weekend has caused doubt uncertainty, volatility in the markets with Silicon Valley Bank going. It's only going to get harder over the next short period. The initiatives that I think work, we got great support out of Breakthrough Victoria. So climate-focused investor, government funds effectively run as a venture capital fund. We got great support from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They've been there at every round of capital that we've, we've raised. That government support is there if you can tap into it. So I'm not going to say it's easy and there are a lot of companies that don't get funded, but there is opportunity if you're in the climate space to tap into a momentum at the moment that exists outside of the rest of tech and it's a positive momentum to try and resolve some of these problems. It, fantastic. I'd love to build a butt of pyramids and uh, you know, maybe not sleep on the top with you, but that kind of impactful stuff I think is amazing. may not be sustainable everywhere all the time, but it's a really big call to action. Love to see if Samsara enzymes can actually do something with the cellulose acetate and cigarette butts rather than exploring that. But I think from a, a political sphere, questions are probably around the, the National Plastics Plan. We spoke to that, who was responsible for designing and, and I guess who's now implementing it are, are different. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an action talking about tackling um, cigarette butt litter um, and essentially to form a, a you know, co-regulatory industry-led stewardship scheme. Uh, we're a couple of years down the track and all that's been cited is due to considerations, due to some global framework around engagement, maybe it can't go ahead. And I think the thing is that we're actually, that's designed specifically to take action and hold tobacco to account and yet it, it hasn't happened. So I think we'd love to see momentum, you know, this year, um, either at a state level on a plastic ban or at a federal level on an EPR or product stewardship um, perspective as well. So I'm not sure if you can got any final comments? Look, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I think there is cynicism often in about politics because people say things like the Morrison announcement and then nothing actually happens. And I think that's part of the job, I think, of um, being in, in politics is actually to hold people to account to this. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's got to be at state level. It's got to be at federal level. And certainly, you know, myself, I'm really committed to seeing how I can drive that, um, you know, with the government because, you, you know, our job is to make government better and it's absolutely critical 
critical. This is an absolutely critical part of it and the communities behind it too. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree, right? Like I think it's a critical part of addressing this and let's do it. Can I just um, talk a little bit about the, the funding bit? So I think it doesn't matter if it's funding, if it's making things happening. It's bloody hard what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to solve planetary problems, climate change, plastic pollution. I like to also highlight that we are making steps towards things. We are here talking. I, I remember when I, was, I started my PhD with Denise back in 2010, nobody even knew what plastic pollution was about. You know, it was, it was called marine debris, something that's happening out there with the whales. So I just want to take this moment to highlight that things are improving, not at the speed that we need, but humanity is, is amazing. You know, I think COVID was a good example, like, okay, we understood we need to, you know, be at home and do all that. So I just would like to tell everybody here, including the, especially the female entrepreneurs, to not uh, give up because there is funding out there. There are impact investment out there, which are people that are looking not only for profitable business, but impact KPIs as well. So, you know, we, are, we have, let's say, Ulu, when we have a board meeting with Main Sequence, which is a CSIRO fund, the interested are looking at, okay, guys, is the price getting close to, to being real and, and competing with fossil plastic, you know, and, and we believe that we are on that wave, just like we had with energy, you know, fossil energy, renewable energy, now is fossil plastic, renewable materials. And I think we are doing an awesome job and there is lots to be fixed. So we need to keep doing the act activism, innovation, and uh, yeah, let's not lose hope because it's very important. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, great stuff, guys. So that was part three of four. Next Ocean Protect podcast will feature part four of the recorded audio from the Ocean Plastic Action Forum at Bondi Beach. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.